Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Isaiah this morning as we uh, are beginning our Christmas series or Advent series over the next few weeks. Uh, as you're finding your place in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, just want to say a quick uh, thank you uh, last week for my family and I being out. We were traveling and visiting family uh, and had a week off of rest. And I'm grateful for uh, Matt Getty and uh, for him standing in this pulpit and delivering God's Word with faithfulness and grateful to have him uh, here with us and, uh, and all that he does with our college ministry. What's been uh, said earlier, today is a unique day in the life of our church. The first Sunday, typically, of every December, uh, we celebrate our world missions offering. Uh, it is uh, our attempt to remind us of really what our, one of our goals are as a church is that we would be a mission-minded people. We would care about the same things that God cares about. That there is a world of lostness. There's a world made up of people that are deeply far from God, that do not know him, do not have a relationship with him. And so one of the ways that we emphasize that is talking about Lottie Moon uh, with our International Mission Board, talking about Annie Armstrong with our North American Mission Board. And then so today, uh, in light of that, or in lieu of that, speaking about Christmas, speaking about lostness, uh, the Lord has brought us to Isaiah 9. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 2 all the way through verse 7. And so would you follow along with me? And this is the word of the Lord for us. The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied our nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9 is one of those interesting passages uh, that exists within the context of Scripture because it speaks to a future event that has not taken place yet but soon will. And throughout the Old Testament in its entirety, there are over 322 direct prophecies that speak about Christ. They speak about his character and they speak about his nature. They speak about the fact that one day, someday soon, he's coming to celebrate the, the very first advent, Emmanuel, God with us. It gives us details in these prophecies about his life, about his death, about his burial and resurrection. All of these things are foretold and all of these things come to pass. Many of you remember in the 16th century, there was a, a French mystic by the name of Nostradamus. And he was known for boiling pots of water and then he would gaze into the water and he would watch the water boil up and then he would come up with these outlandish futuristic predictions. All from looking at water. And every single one of those that he, that he prophesied about, all of those things that took place, they, they never actually took place. He was proven to be wrong. He was proven to be false. Yet throughout scripture, over 322 different times, do we hear and do we see, and in particular in Isaiah 9, over and over we see the word of the Lord, the prophets of the Lord, the prophecy that was given over and over, it is fulfilled. 
In the Old Testament in particular, uh, scholars say and contend that nearly 25% of the Old Testament is actually made up of prophecy. For telling the, the birth, for telling the events that were to come. And the dominant theme that exists from Genesis all the way to Revelation is this theme that Jesus is coming and that the world needs to be watching. They need to be alert and, and looking for the birth in particular of this child. But, but to understand Isaiah 9, it's helpful to understand really what's going on throughout the book. The people of God have, have found themselves in the midst of a, what was known as a divided kingdom. And the people of God that lived in Jerusalem, they had a king and, his, and the king's name was King Ahaz and, and he was a terrible king. Ahaz uh, would look up and, and he wanted to protect and he wanted to guard his people. We see this story of Ahaz in 2 Kings. And yet in this time of Isaiah, Ahaz looks out and he sees this mighty power that's growing in strength known as the Assyrian army. And the Assyrians are going around and they're attacking every single person, every individual, every town they can get their hands on with the hopes that they would expand their kingdom. And so all of these little bitty countries that surround Israel at the time, they said, listen, we don't want to be attacked by the Assyrians, and so let's form an alliance. Let's come up with our own group, and, and if we all kind of come together, we can attack the Assyrians and we can beat the Assyrians. Well, King Ahaz, who was leading his people, supposed to be following the Lord and doing what God had said, they come to Ahaz and they're like, join our alliance and we'll defeat the Assyrians. And, and Ahaz, he really doesn't like these other countries either, and he, and he says, no, I'm not going to join your alliance. And so Ahaz becomes scared. He becomes intimidated, and, and so what the Lord does is he sends the prophet Isaiah, and he sends the prophet to Isaiah to remind him of a couple of things. In particular, what Isaiah tells King Ahaz is, do not join that alliance. Put your faith, trust in the Lord. He will protect you. Well, then pretty soon after that, the Assyrian king hears that Ahaz won't unite with these other countries. And so the Assyrian king comes down to Ahaz and he's like, hey, why don't you join our army instead and we'll just annex you into our kingdom and then we'll take over all of the rest of these other countries that are around. And so Ahaz is like, I, I don't want to join that army either. So Isaiah goes back to him and he says, listen, do not form an alliance with the Assyrians and do not form an alliance with all of these other countries. Put your hope and your trust and your faith in the Lord and he will be the one to protect you. And so uh, Isaiah says, I'll give you a sign. Ahaz, Ahaz goes, I don't want the sign. Well, he, Isaiah gives him the sign anyway. And in Isaiah 7, he, he talks about the foretelling of the virgin birth of Christ, that Christ was coming. And so he gets a sign anyway. Well, long story short, Ahaz is not a man who, who had a heart that was cultivated for the things of God. And so he went out and went around and he knew all of these other gods that existed in all of these other countries all around them. And so Ahaz began to sacrifice idols. He began to sacrifice things to all these other gods, the Assyrian gods and the gods of all of these other countries in hopes that one of those gods would hear him and one of those gods would protect the people of God all the while forsaking the one true God who was speaking to him directly through the prophet Isaiah. And Ahaz made some, some terrible decisions and his legacy is basically boiled down to this. His legacy that he leaves when he eventually dies at like 33 or 34, his legacy is, is that he led his 
people to supplement the one true God with all of these other false gods. So his legacy was he led a whole lot of people astray. He let a whole lot of people walk in paths of, of disobedience and because he got scared and he got frightful and because he was afraid. Now there's some sense in which we can put ourselves in Ahaz's shoes, though we're not kings of, of Israel, we're not kings of Jerusalem. Yeah, we can identify to a certain degree if, if all of the people around you, all the cultures and all the countries, all they want to do is fight and conquer or you're going to be conquered. And you live constantly with, with these circumstances. You live constantly with this turmoil that exists all the way around you. Everywhere you look, to the north and the south and the, and the east and the west, it would be real easy for perhaps some of us to get rattled like Ahaz and to start to, to fish for, for certain things that are not there and to run after other gods that are not there. But here's the, the key problem in Isaiah 9. And the key thing that, that Isaiah is reminding him is he's saying, listen, the Lord God will help you. You just need to trust him. The Lord God's going to help you. You'll defeat the Assyrians and we'll defeat all these other armies. You just have to put your faith in him. And so notice what he says in verse 2. He, he describes the people as a people who walk in darkness, yet they have seen a great light. They dwell in a land of, of deep darkness and on them light has shined. What this means in this moment is he's reminding Ahaz and he's reminding the people that the metaphor, predominant metaphor in the Old Testament that has to do with light means and it symbolizes, it points to the presence of God in people's lives. So you let your, your light shine, not put it under the bushel. Let, let people be able to see your light, that you're following the one true God, that you're trusting in him and that you're believing in him. Yet these people find themselves completely devoid of the presence of God, walking in darkness. To put it another way, they were walking in a spirit of lostness. It was a group of people that had been led down a path where, where their heart was not for the things of God. And so Isaiah comes in and he says, listen, these people who walked in darkness, they've seen the light, dwell in the land. On them, light has shined. On them, God is offering his presence to his people, to Ahaz, if he would just trust him. He goes on in verse three and he says, you've multiplied our nation, you've increased its joy for the yoke of his burden, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken these things. And for unto us a child is born. A couple of things that are interesting about Isaiah 9 is in particular, what this means is, is that God was promising them immediate deliverance if they would just allow the presence of God in their life to manifest itself, to show itself. But the irony is, God says he's gonna send one day the Messiah. And he's going to be known as all these, these wonderful descriptions, but the, the difficult part was this wasn't going to happen for another 700 years. And eventually Ahaz ends up being sacked by the Assyrian army and they annex uh, the, the kingdom and basically they live in exile then for, for almost the rest of their life. God allows them to be consumed 
by the people around them, all because they didn't yield and didn't allow the Lord God to have his presence, to let it be known in their lives, to, to walk in faithfulness, to walk in truth. And so God says, I, I, I could have and, and I would have delivered you, but you had to trust me in this moment. But one day I'm going to send the Messiah, my son, I'm going to send him as an offering, as a sacrifice for you and me. And he's going to be known as all of these things, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so the big question in Isaiah 9 is, is the question of why doesn't God answer the prayer of Ahaz and deliver the people of God with, with immediacy? Why does he wait 700 years to, to deliver the Messiah? Why does he wait 700 years to, to send Christ to die for the sins of, of mankind? I, I think one reason as we back up out of Isaiah 9 that I think it reminds us of this morning and in this season of life, wherever it is that you find, is that ultimately, ultimate answers to our problems are going to be given in Jesus. Ultimately. Like one, one day, all the questions and all the concerns, all the turmoil and, and all the difficulty that we experience, all the, all the hardship, all the sense of life's not fair, it, it's not gone my way, all of those things will be given meaning at the very end in and through Christ. That he is ultimately what, what gives us meaning in our lives. He clarifies and, and helps us understand our circumstance. What Isaiah was doing in this moment, he was telling King Ahaz, that, that someone is coming that is going to give greater meaning to your life. Someone is going to be sent by God. He's going to help you understand all of the circumstances that are before you, all of the hardships. But the reality is this, that the reason why we celebrate this first Advent is because beyond our circumstances... And beyond our difficulties, beyond our trials, beyond our tribulations, what God knew and what he understood, rightfully so, is that more so than him fixing whatever's wrong in our life, what God understood in that moment is that he sends Christ not to change your circumstance, but rather to change your heart. God understood that in the first advent, it brought relief from our sins. And the second advent is going to bring relief from our suffering. But until then, friends, don't let anyone tell you and buy into the lie that just because you've placed your faith in Christ, just because you've trusted in him, that your life is going to always be infinitely easier. God knew that beyond the invading armies that surround Israel and the kingdom with impending death, destruction, being removed from their homes, losing possessions, seeing loved ones and friends and family, watching them perish at the hands of these armies that come in, God still sends this gentle reminder, hey Ahaz, if you'll trust in me, hey, if you'll believe in me, if you'll walk in the light that I've given you, I will deliver you from this hand, but they don't do that. And then God says, well, listen, what we've got to do then is we've got to fix the condition of Ahaz's heart We've got to fix the condition of your heart and my heart because my sin is far more serious than the circumstance I find myself in to the Lord. My, my sin and the, and the issues that exist within my heart are far more serious to the Lord. And so he sends Christ to deal with my sins. He sends Christ to deal with your sins. 
And I find one of the most compelling lessons, <coughs> excuse me, that exists in here is that God waits 700 years, 700 years to deal with it. In the South, we have a phrase, if you played any kind of sports or athletics growing up, you would hear this phrase, if you encountered someone that was much slower than you and not as athletic, you'd say, that, that person, that, that boy, that man, that girl, whoever it is, they are as slow as Christmas. They're as slow as Christmas. And the vernacular of that phrase, what it, what it means is, is that when we enter into the, the Christmas season, we, we have a sense in which there should be a great anticipation for that morning. There should be a, an anticipation for, for that Christmas Eve service. There's a, an anticipation as a child when you wake up and, and you go to the tree and you see your presence and, and you find out what you got. And, and if you grew up in my house, we already knew what we got because we figured out how to unwrap the gift paper and then wrap it back up before mom ever knew. And so we knew. And it took away the anticipation. But in the midst of Advent season, we, we have this sense of, of anticipation. Would it come quicker? And so we wait. And I think one of the predominant themes when, in Christmas season is this theme that, that we, we wait. We're waiting on, on Emmanuel. We're waiting on the birth of our Savior. We're waiting to commemorate that. We're, we're longing for it, that, that God would send his son and save me from my sins and to save my neighbors from their sins and to save you from your sins. We, we anticipate that and we look forward and we, and we long for it. But then I want you to notice in verse 6, and I think these are some of the most amazing descriptors of, of who Jesus is. And, and I want to say this, these, these aren't necessarily just descriptions of his attributes. It's not just a name, like, like you would have a name and have no meaning to it. No, what these phrases mean in verse 6 is they are illustrating for us how the creator relates to his creation. And so every one of these words, they, they teach us something about the character of God and how he relates to us made in his image. And so first, I want you to notice the phrase wonderful counselor. Those two words are, are not put together by mistake. If you separated them out and just looked at the etymology of them, the word wonderful in the Bible, it means things like awesome. It means wondrous. It means it's, he's awe-inspiring. It means he's, he's glorious. It means all that he does is, is right and, and good, and it, and it creates a sense of, of awe and, and wonder. He is, he is wonderful. And then it says he is a counselor, someone who, who helps, uh, who, who guides with our problems, who gives us insight according to his word and, and the spirit. But, but here's the significance that I don't want you to miss with these two words being combined and used together because he's very deliberate in saying it like this. To say he is wonderful counselor, the significance of that is the way that God helps us most in our problems. In his glory, in his awe-inspiring ways, in his counsel, is he allows us to see how wondrous and glory, glorified glory he is. He allows us to see how, how perfect he is and how, how excellent in all things. And so, so here's what that means for you. That there are no doubt in my mind, there are some of you that are here today and you, are, you have a very difficult set of circumstances in your life. 
You've got relational conflict. You've got financial issues. You, you're watching loved ones suffer with disease and, and sickness. Tomorrow is, is uncertain and it is hard. And so what God does in the midst of this is he doesn't always promise to deliver you from those things. He never makes the promise that he's gonna keep you from, from any kind of sickness in all of your life. But what he does promise when he uses the phrase wonderful counselor is that in the midst, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of, of armies coming in and wanting to invade and to take away everything that you love dear, in the midst of, of uh, issues at work, issues at home, whatever it is that you face, what God is offering is the idea that he is a wonderful counselor that in the midst of those circumstances, he makes himself available and seen to you so that you get to gaze upon his wondrous, awe-inspiring glory and you get to see him in the midst of the hardship and the pain and the suffering. The promise is not that he will always deliver us from the hard things in life. The promise is, is that he he gives us the gift of himself. He gives us the ability to, to see him. And he reminds us in the midst of those, of those hard things, he, he reminds us about how wonderful he is and wondrous he is. And he reminds us about how awe-inspiring he is if we, if we just look up and look at him. If we just see him for, for who he is and we pursue him for who he is and, and all that he's done and all that he will do. You see, walking closely with Jesus doesn't take away your problems, but it always redefines those problems. It gives it a different kind of meaning. It gives you a different kind of, of understanding in the midst of it. That he walks with you because he's, he's changing you. He's, he's forcing you to, to wait. He's forcing you to anticipate the thing that will come. He, he's saying, you're right where, where I've got you now in this moment. Just look at me, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. The same God who controls the winds and the waves, the same God that creates the mountains and the oceans and the streams, the same God who creates from the smallest level to the largest level, this same God, all of those things and his ability and his sovereignty are not the thing that ultimately make him mighty. Those are not the things that, that ultimately make him really who he is, but the fact is that his mightiness his being a mighty God, his mightiness is wrapped up in a love and affection that he has for you and me, that he would do anything possible to rescue you and me from our sin. He is a mighty God, not because of, of the things that you see in creation. He is a mighty God because he was willing to enter into pain and to suffering so that he could save and redeem and reconcile you and me to himself. Therefore, he is a wonderful counselor. Therefore, he is a mighty God. This is the gift that he gives. But thirdly, I want to say as we back out of Isaiah 9, and we see Ahaz's life and leading people down paths of destruction, leading them down paths of, of darkness, and, and leading them in all the wrong ways. He, he was not content to trust in God. And the problem wasn't that he tried to form alliances. The problem was that God told him, do not form the alliance. 
The issue was not let's gather together and to protect ourselves and to do that. That was not the issue. The issue was God comes to him through Isaiah and he says, don't do it. Like this is the word of the Lord for you. Don't do it. Trust in him. Believe in him that, he, that he's good, that, he, that he'll do what he, he says he's going to do. Call upon his name. Walk in his light. Avoid the darkness. And, I, and Ahaz goes, no thanks. And so God rebukes him and he takes him into exile. And, and what he thought was the best thing, he, he is then sacked by the Assyrians and, and all of the people are, are plundered and, and taken away. You see, I think like Ahaz, in this season that we, that we live in right now, the greatest danger for you in the presence that you will replace God with something else. You will let that other alliance, that other sin in your life, whatever that might be, you'll let that take a foothold in your life and it will replace your, your walk and your relationship with the Lord and his word. The greatest spiritual threat to your life is not rejecting God, but rather supplementing him with something else. It could be your marriage. It could be your friendships. It could be your identity and what you think or hope people think of you. It could be your finances in your home. It could be your possessions. It could be your time. It can be all of those things. The danger is that we would not reject God outright, but we would seek to supplement him with something else because Ahaz was, was offering sacrifices to these other gods and all the while he was still offering sacrifices to the one true God. But it was God and these other gods. It was God and, and, and something else. And so the idea behind Isaiah 9 is that we would be a people where our allegiance is solely with and for the God who delivers the people from the darkness. That our trust and, and that our hope would be in him. Because he is this everlasting father. He is this prince of peace. I find it instructive that in moments like this on a world missions offering day, as we focus just briefly on, on the idea that this lostness that exists all around King Ahaz, this lostness that exists on, on, on the TCU campus, this lostness that exists within our city, this lostness that exists all around the world, the brokenness that exists of people that, that don't know him, that have never called upon his name, that has been mentioned, this, this black flag over here, that it, that it represents places like India. It represents places like Pakistan and, and China. It represents places like Bangladesh and Nepal and, and all of these countries where there is little to no access for the gospel. And there are armies all around waging war on one another in the metaphor that exists there with the lostness that exists within his people that don't know him. And so once a year, we take up a, an offering throughout the month of December it has been said the first 50,000 of that, it goes to help our partnerships that we have as a church that exist all around the world. The remainder balance of that, 70% of that goes to the, to the IMB, our International Mission Board, where Ben said, rightly so, they, they employ 3,552 employees around the world. And listen to me when I say this, I believe this with every fiber of my being, that they are our heroes. They are the people that we prop up. They, they are the people that are walking into this Advent season and some of them are not coming home for Christmas. 
Some of them don't get to open up presents with their, their families and their moms and dads. They, they don't get to, to be and, and to do, they, they stay. Why? Because they're overwhelmed with the lostness that exists there. They want the gospel to, to be known in the midst of that. And so we, we give and we seek to give generously and graciously. And, and one thing about, that I love about this church is that you guys have always stepped up when it comes to this. We value this. It's important to, to the Lord. It's, it's important to us as elders and as staff. And we know that it's important to you. So we give, we give graciously, we give sacrificially, we give generously. Here's my hope for, for this service in particular. Is I, I really prayed this week what I would really consider perhaps a, a pretty dangerous prayer for some of you. My prayer this week was that God was gonna pluck some of you up out of our congregation in the next year or two. And he was gonna not let you be, be satisfied or content with, with staying here and, and trying to live the American dream and find the perfect spouse, have the perfect kids and the perfect house, that, that you would be people. Not that anything is wrong with those things, but God would allow you to be so wholly restless that he would send you to the darkest places in this world. He would send you to the, to the countries where, where people have never heard the name of Jesus. And, and perhaps in the next year or two, you would be the one to first rightly introduce someone who has never much less called upon his name, but has no idea who he is, that God would begin to pluck college students and seminary students and young adults and older adults. And he would, he would take them out of this congregation and you would leave and be sent out. You'd be sent out because we, we care about the people who have never heard. We care about the opportunity that, that exists, we hope would exist in the life of, of individuals to, to hear the name of Jesus, to call upon his name and to be saved. And so I wanna end the service that way today. I wanna end the service where we as a people, we, we start to pray that God would send some of you he would send you to, to any one of these, these countries that exist here. He would send some of you just to go down the, down the street to your neighbor, but more particularly, he would, he would send you to cross geographical barriers, to learn the language, to be a sojourner in a foreign land that you don't get to come home for Christmases and Thanksgivings. You, you stay because you're overwhelmed with the lostness that exists. And so I'm gonna have Jeffrey and the team to come back up on stage with me. I'm gonna ask us to enter just to a, a time of, of prayer for this. That God would raise up young people in this church that'd be willing to go to some of those places. And so as the spirit leads, this altar down front is open. Would you pray with me and would you pray alongside me? Would you, would you also pray for the 3,552 international missionaries that are supported by the IMB? Would you pray that, that God would bring them comfort and give them peace through his word and his presence? That you would encourage them. So let's stand and, and let's go before the Lord or kneel or whatever you wanna do, come down to this altar, let it be a place of worship before the Lord and let us pray that God would do something great in our church, that he would do something great with our international missionaries. I'm gonna pray first and then we'll get going. Father, uh, we love you. We thank you for your word that it is sufficient and authoritative for us. We don't wanna be motivated by, by guilt or shame. Father, we wanna be motivated by the goodness of your character, the goodness of your gospel. 
And so, Father, I ask that if anyone is here today and does not know you, has never called upon your name to be saved, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would repent and they would believe. So, Father, would you help them overcome their unbelief? Father, would you raise up a group of college students in this church that be willing to go to the hardest places in this world for the sake of your gospel? I ask these things in Christ's name. God's people said, amen.